Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. Is this the booth drafting the circuits? Three-way theater or the Kevin Jackson show? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kinda lost track myself here on Hoobazoo.com. So, do you feel lucky, punk? Oscar Mike Radio. Come in. Come in, Oscar Mike Radio. Sinister One, this is Oscar Mike. I have Ulima Charlie over. Okay, today is September 29th, 2016. I am Travis with Oscar Mike Radio, broadcasting from the City of Champions, Brockton, Massachusetts. And this is Oscar Mike Radio, episode 11. Wow. So I want to start off with the usual, but not the usual, which is the question of the week. And the question of the week went like this. Why are we doing this? This is what my youngest son asked me while we were waiting to start uh, the third annual David Vassilian ride in Whitman, Massachusetts last weekend. I took my motorcycle and put my youngest on the back of it and we went to the Whitman VFW and we waited a little bit to get started up but during that time we looked at motorcycles and talked to people and he jumped in the bouncy house and you know while we're getting ready to you know hear the national anthem which everybody stood for thank you very much in the prayer he's like you know why are we doing this and it was a good question because you know why do people why do complete strangers show up to ride motorcycles for 20 to 30 miles for a cause? And it could be this ride for one of Abington's sons who was killed in action in Afghanistan protecting his country. It could be for any kind of charitable cause. But why, why, why do we do this? And it got me thinking. And so I told him in this case, that we ride to remember one of our own who went to protect us and didn't come home. And I said, as long as one motorcycle, but he shows up to ride, he wouldn't be forgotten. That, that, that person wouldn't be forgotten. Daniel Vassilian, Sergeant, United States Marine Corps. I don't know if that was the best answer. Uh, I was trying to keep it on a very plain simple level and be honest with him about you know why people are here because some would say that 
people on their Harleys, on their motorcycles, on their sport bikes, and their metric cruisers just do this to make themselves feel better. It's to, it's to make us, the people riding, feel better. And there may be a bit of truth in that. There may be. But I think there's something else. We could do any number of things to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Any number of things. However, if, if we can come together as a group of people who just happen to ride motorcycles, and that person's family and friends can see that, you know, last Sunday almost 800 people showed up on their motorcycles to donate money and time to remember a U.S. Marine who didn't come home. And, and those actions made the family feel a little bit better for that moment in time than it was worth it. And then we come back and we, you know, tell stories about our time in the service if you're a veteran or you talk about your family who's in the service or you talk about your motorcycle and you're celebrating freedom and you don't have to worry about being politically correct or that you're going to have, you know, somebody kneel down during the national anthem. If, if you can do all that in this space during that time, then, yeah, it does make you feel better. And for me, my motorcycle represents freedom and sanctuary. So to be able to share with others in that freedom of movement, freedom of expression, celebration of the freedoms we enjoy that were bought and paid for dearly by others, I would argue is the real reason why we do these kinds of things. So that's what I took away from this ride. It's the first time I've done something like this. It was a pleasure taking my son and I look forward to doing it again. So if you hear this in a couple of years or now, buddy, and you'll know what dad was trying to tell you that Sunday. There's my phone going off. I don't know why. So, like last week, when the word, and in the military speak, the word is what's passed down orally between, you know, senior level to junior enlisted or boot enlisted orally. You know, the word's passed and knowledge is shared. Uh, the word last week involved terrorism and building you know, this framework that we use data to discuss terrorism, what's going on in our country with regard to these terrorist attacks. This week's going to be a kind of a, a framework where I talk about uh, military technology. And I think the one that I'm going to start with is a very easy one because I haven't done it before, but also something that I know a little bit about, not a lot, is this F-35 Lightning program. And I'm very, very interested in this uh, aircraft and what it does. So I'm going to explain a little bit of the background, cover the cost, and then kind of go over some of my um, feelings about it. And once again, you know, if you hear this and you think I am wrong, straight up wrong, then tell me. If you agree with me, let me know. Uh, I'll have links and updates on the OscarMite site, uh, .wordpress.com site, which is the blog site. 
You can contact me on Twitter, Facebook. I have a YouTube channel and Snapchat. And according to my children, the uncool but funny Instagram feed that I have. So the F-35. What is it? Why is it? And is it important? Well, it certainly is important. As I will talk about the need for a excuse me, need for a different, newer aircraft in our arsenal is evident. Uh, by way of comparison, you know, the only thing I compared to with my service time was uh, the helicopter, the CH-46 Sea Knight, and we had one crash north of Yuma, Arizona, and me and another Lance Corporal were set to guard duty on it overnight. And the incept date, the date this thing rolled off the assembly line, was 1971. A year before I was born. And it was like 1997, 96. And it was still in service. What I'm trying to say is, many of the aircraft in the United States uh, aviation arsenal are, are old, for lack of a better term. The F-16 was in development in uh, the late 70s. The A-10 was the same way. The B-52 Stratofortress was developed in the 1950s. First flew in 1958, I believe. I could be wrong by a couple of years, but late 50s, yeah. And they're still flying. Uh... The CH-47 Chinook is an old aircraft. The CA-130 is an old aircraft. I could go on and on and on. They're old, and they require a lot of expertise, money, and maintenance to keep these things flying per flight hour. So, the decision was made to develop a fifth-generation fighter. And what the powers that be wanted was a fighter that they could craft for different purposes. In other words, they have one template they use to build the fighter and then it serves different roles, thus reducing the, the time to implement, the time to maintain, and uh, supposedly the cost per, per fighter. And it's, it's important because what they wanted is a fighter that was a true dogfight fighter like the F-16. They wanted a close air support aircraft like the F-18 or A-10. And they needed a aircraft that could, you know, take off and land on unimproved fields like the uh, AV-8 Har Harrier. Now... If you think we don't need a new aircraft, then I would invite you to look up some information on the Harrier. And that was an aircraft that I got to know in Yuma, Arizona. It's the aircraft that can take off and land vertically. It also has the nickname the Widowmaker because of how difficult it was to fly. And a lot of people got killed and aircraft got destroyed because it would literally fly out of the sky if it was not treated the right way. Devastating aircraft. It could carry a lot of ammunitions and you know dump them very accurately on the enemy. 
It could take off literally from, you know, less than the size of a football field and land. And so you could put it out in the middle of the jungle on a desert tarmac on a highway, refuel, maintain, and rearm it and get it back up in the air. But what I'm trying to say is, and again, and really kind of emphasize is that these aircraft were not the best they could be. And we have China and Russia designing new aircraft ahead of us. So they came up with this thing called the F-35 Lightning. And it's a fifth generation fighter, which means fifth generation fighters, fifth generation aircraft like the F-22 and the F-35 are built with stealth capability from the ground up. They want to make these things as invisible or ghost to radars as they possibly can. Which I'm interested because, you know, my Marine Corps career was spent trying to track aircraft to shoot them down in Hawk. That's what we did. And it was always kind of interesting that supposedly the most invisible aircraft with enough software upgrades and, you know, equipment upgrades with, you know, laser laser trackers, that kind of thing, you could you could figure out a way to get around them. But allegedly this this aircraft is is like a ghost in the sky. Conventional radars cannot see it until it's right on top of them. What does that mean? It means that you can send these aircraft in to take out high value targets and leave the theater of operations with minimal impact to the pilot, the aircraft, and also saving time and effort from ground forces to take out um, surface to air missile batteries which is key to take these things out and get around them so your heavier slower bombers can come in and then take out other uh, high value targets to cripple the enemy and this all sounds good I'm like you know I'm reading about this thing a couple years ago I'm like this is great this is awesome I mean we definitely need this for the reasons I just mentioned we got old aircraft it's constantly breaking down cost a, a ton of money to fix let's do this thing and then, because I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a numbers guy, I'm an analyst, I, I want to know, you know, what the cost is. I didn't care what the cost was in the Marine Corps. I'm just like, okay, it's cool. Let's just do this thing, blow stuff up. It's great. But now I'm like, okay, how much does this cost? What is this costing me? Because remember, like I said before, it's our money. That's right. I don't care if you work for McDonald's or you're a senior VP at a major financial firm, lawyer, doctor, teacher, construction worker, it's your money that they are spending. So you have an interest to make sure that your money is spent properly. So I just want to read you real quick some numbers about how much the F-35 costs and see if you think your money, that's right, your money is being spent properly. And this is not Travis pulling these numbers out of thin air with lucky rabbit foot or out of a hat. This is right from common watchdog websites that talk about the F-35, okay? A single Air Force F-35A cost one hundred and forty-eight million for one. One Marine Corps 
iterate, iteration, excuse me, cost $251 million. And the Navy, the one that is catapult launched and, you know, catapult caught, cost $337 million for one. The average cost for a single F-35 is $178 million. And I don't know about you, but for me, just a little old terminal lance corporal here, that is a, as we say in the Marine Corps, a shit ton of M-16s. That's a lot of tanks. That's a lot of 105 howitzers. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot of everything. That's a lot of steel rain rain down. That's a lot of, a lot of bolts going more to the everywhere. That is a lot of money for an aircraft. Wow. Okay. The F-35 program and I'll have these links in the blog, has been plagued by cost overruns. To date, they have spent $1.5 trillion okay, to develop this aircraft. That's the money they spend on it before they actually roll out a production model. Now, if you went down to the local Kia, Ford, Chevy, Dodge, Toyota dealer, and your Toyota Camry or Toyota Avalon or Ford F-150 cost $100,000, and, and you had the dealership telling you, hey, you know, we had to spend this much money to develop this truck that you could drive, and this is why it costs so much, would you buy it? No, you, you wouldn't, and neither would I, okay? I mean, let's just look what the Pentagon plans to do. The Pentagon plans to spend almost $400 billion to buy almost 2,400 copies of this aircraft. Now, think about if you work in the auto industry or the motorcycle industry or boat, RV, anything, and, and your product costs that much money to make, 2,000 cars, 2,000 RVs, what have you, I'm just sliding the scale here to kind of make it like apples to oranges, you know, let's just say that, you know, your Ford F-150 that you get from the, you know, Quirk Auto Works in Braintree, Massachusetts, you know, he has 2,000 of these things in the lot and they, they cost, you know, $250 million to make. Do you think he'd be in business that long? No. He wouldn't. And neither would Ford. Private companies had to figure out a way to fund the R&D and work out all the bugs and make an acceptable product that people would want to buy based on their input, go back to the drawing board, make sure the prototypes were were, were functional, make sure they pass all government regulations, make sure their customers like them, and then 
put these things in production at a price that people wanted to buy them at. And it's not an efficient process, but the automakers have gotten it down pretty darn good by way of comparison. I mean, I don't understand how Lockheed Martin, the people who make this, went overboard so much. And I, I've read the aviation magazines. There's 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 one called Jane's. If you if you know anything about aviation, Jane's is the one of the premier uh, SME resources for aviation, military aviation, talking about you know changes and you know problems, so on and so forth. But yeah, you know, I'm not seeing this. I, I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing why it's going to cost that much money per aircraft why the helmet cost four hundred thousand dollars and I've heard I've seen the technology how the helmet will will tell you how you have threats inbound behind you eyes in the back of your head that's great stuff that's great but what I'm trying to say here is even though I can't understand it I've been in the military I can't understand you know, why we're doing this and why it costs so much. And, and here's the why I'm asking this question. Here's where I'm going with this is, again, $160 million is a shit ton of other equipment. And consider this. They have Predator drones that cost maybe a million dollars a copy now. Now, when I was in the Marine Corps and they first came out, I think the, the first generation drones, they were just getting flying. We were just learning how to track them because they were small. They were maybe maybe $50,000 per copy. It costs pennies to launch these things. You can launch you know, a military drone in, in the size of a football field and land one in the same space. You can sit in a, in a command console in the United States and or you know go over to the theater of operations and with trailers and the right communications fly these things year round, no problem. They have the same kind of weather issues that normal normal conventional aircraft have, but you can fly these things 24 seven, 365. They don't carry as much munitions as a as a conventional aircraft, but you can you can build more of them. They're cheaper to operate, they're cheaper to maintain, they're cheaper to train people to fix and fly, and you can get the same kind of service life out of one of them. And yes, they show up on radars, yes they do, but again, you know, it's one thing to try to engage one aircraft, it's another matter entirely to try to engage 100 at one time. So my, my thought process is, and what I'm trying to understand is, okay, how about we take that $160 million, that's your money, it's your money, and go a different direction. And again, the reason I'm saying this is, let's go back to World War II. Everybody knows what the B-17 bomber looks like, right? Well, what if I told you that the German aircraft with the exception of the P-51 Mustang, were by and far superior aircraft with superior crane trained crews than the U.S. Army Air Corps of, of um, fighters. 
The Germans had better aircraft. Their crews were better trained. The aircraft were built better. They were more advanced, so on and so forth. But they were also expensive to maintain. It took a lot more to train these people to fly them. So there were fewer of them. Meanwhile, B-17 was, by and large, a, a crewed aircraft fly. It wasn't that sophisticated. Now, it had the NORAD bombsite on it, but it was pretty much four engines housed by a bunch of guns with armor. These things were designed to take a pounding, deliver their payload, and come home for pennies on the dollar compared to their German and Japanese counterparts. We had more of them than the enemy had. We were able to field more of them quickly because we could build them faster, train the crews easier, and they weren't as hard to work on. Now, I am not taking anything away from the brave men who flew these things in the unbelievable conditions to complete the mission. But the fact remains is we went more cheaper more cheaper effective than high-end. And my concern is we're building a high-end, you know, device that has all the bells and whistles and whiz-bang and we're going to get our asses handed to us by somebody who built something that costs maybe, I don't know, 20 million per copy instead of 178 million per copy. And so if you can build 2000 for 400 billion, how about you build 20,000 for 400 billion or, you know, 10,000 for 400 billion? Because, you know, if you, if form files function, the more you can build these things, the cheaper the price goes down. So I, I guess my, 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 my concern is that we're, we're chasing this pipe dream of having to have the most advanced weapon system out there, but we could build another system that's more effective for less money that does the same thing. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But again, when I have to hear that we can't get you know armored personnel carriers to work right, and we have problems selecting the next you know, handgun for the Army to use. The Army's spent the last 10 years trying to pick a replacement for the M9 Beretta, which, I don't know, my grandpa told me the Colt 45 did the job just fine. you, you got to kind of wonder where our priorities are. And, and, and again, I, I, I want to go down this track with these kind of things because it's, it's our money that our fighting men and women are going to be put in situations with these vehicles and these equipment to fight our battles. And while I'm all about getting us the best we can use to fight that battle with, we can be smarter about it. And I don't think we're being smarter here. So I, I, I'm telling you, if you think I'm wrong, if you think that you know I'm just a gas bag, well, let me know. I'll have that conversation with you. But if you think I have some valid merit, that what I'm saying is valid and has merit, excuse me, let me know. So that's where I'm coming from. Uh, we're going to do this in a couple episodes, and we'll see what happens.
I want to do my unit shout out this week to the people in Prescott Valley, Arizona, members of the VFW in Prescott Valley, Arizona, and the Grand Canyon Harley Davidson dealership. And what they did last week is they took a 101 year old veteran by the name of Ray Wessel who served in World War II worked for Harley Davidson for 24 years for his final uh, motorcycle ride very very cool there's pictures of him online with an old old bike that he uh, rode after his service time I mean it was just cool to see and they have you know, clips on YouTube and other things where they put this guy on a trike and it took him for a ride. And it's just cool to see. It's just, like I said, you know, I, I love motorcycles. I always have. And I hope to be that guy. I hope my kids will do that for me and put me on a bike when I'm too old to hold one up anymore. And it's just a way to honor what I consider a true badass. And, and so the people that put this together for Ray deserve a, a shout out. Yes, I know they're civilians, but hey, that's how I feel. And I'm going to close with the upcoming event for this week is the uh, fourth annual Wheels for Warriors Car and Truck Show. And basically what the Wheels for Warriors does is they put on these car and truck shows at uh, places. They have people come in and with their Corvettes and their motorcycles and their custom vehicles and you pay a, uh, to get in and you walk around and see the vehicles and have raffles and it raises money for local uh, veterans organizations. It uh, has a good rating on um, you know charity and it's going to be at the um, Unit Point, Union Point uh, in South Weymouth, which is the Na South Weymouth Naval Air Station, I believe. And it is $20 to get in or to register a car and motorcycle for the show. It's $5 for a car to drive in and see. And veterans are free. So if you have a some kind of proof of service, you get in free. For more info, you can contact Susan Reed at 508-844-1658 or susan.reed at pepsico.com or Maura Lynch 781-348-1576 and her email is maura.lynch at pepsico.com this event is also on Facebook at 4th Annual uh, Wheels for Warriors Car and Truck Show and you can check it out there so that is it for this week uh, Next week will be three months of doing Oscar Mike Radio. Woohoo. Pretty excited. And I'm, again, I don't know what I'm doing just yet, but I'm getting there, having a lot of fun doing it. And there's a lot more fun stuff coming down the way for us to talk about. And that is it. Simplify. Oscar Mike Radio out. Oscar Mike Radio, over and out.
Oscar Mike Radio, do you copy? Since the one actual, I have you five by five. Anchors away, my boys, anchors away. Farewell to college joys, we sail at break of day. Our last night of shore, drink to the poem. Until we meet once more, here's wishing you a happy voyage home. Oscar Mike Radio is in route. Copy that, Sinister One. Coming at you from the city of champions, Brockton, Massachusetts. Come in, Oscar Mike Radio. Oscar Mike Radio, veteran in action, on the move, on mission, always.